Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. Those interviews are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to competitive teams, racers, rock crawlers, business owners, employees, media and private park owners, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active and off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Tread victoriously. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, Something to save and read at any time. Forlow Magazine is a magazine for you. Forlow cannot be found in a storefront or on a bookshelf, but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit ForlowMagazine.com to order your subscription today. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Mike Stump. Mike is an old-time friend of mine. I think we met somewhere around... Well, I probably saw him the first time in 1999. We'll get into that down in Johnson Valley. Um, but I believe I met him right after I moved out of Utah and back to, to California, up on the probably up on the Rubicon or at a party somewhere. Anyway, um, Mike competed, was one of 42 drivers in our first event at, at Lake Amador for the Cal Rocks Put Up or Shut Up. So he's definitely an OG in my mind with us. Hey, Mike, let's talk about your life, and uh, good to have you on here. Well, Rich, I appreciate you having me on here. It's uh, good to uh, good to talk to you again. Um, we visited, uh, God, what was it, uh, been almost a bit, is it almost about uh, eight months ago or a year ago when I uh, met you at your house? Yeah, it was, like I think it was about six, eight months ago, yep. Right. Yeah, it was the first time I'd seen you in quite a long time, so it was uh, great to see you again. Yeah, and uh, let's, uh, let's rock and roll on this podcast thing and and let's find out more about you so where were you born and raised well uh that may be a little bit of a long story like i said but uh i was actually we have born... all of the time we need today <laughs> <laughs> um i technically i was actually born here uh here in utah i was born in salt lake city uh in 1969 uh, my parents were for whatever reason, I don't know why, but happened to be on a road trip while my mother was nine and a half months pregnant. God knows why they were doing that, but uh, I happened to be passing through uh, Salt Lake City uh, when she went into labor. And, well, about four or five days later, released out of the hospital and they finished the road trip. <laughs> so um, we were living in uh, they were living in uh, I want to say at the time they were living in Las Vegas. Um, so after they finished their road trip over, we went back to Las Vegas, um, spent probably the first, just from my recollection, from what they tell me about the first, maybe three to four years of my life, maybe five years, uh, in Vegas and outside of Vegas area. 
And then uh, my parents decided to uh, move to uh, Godforsaken, California. <laughs> well, come on now. When they when they moved back, when they moved there, it was a damn nice state. And absolutely, yeah. We won't get into the politicals, but yeah. So uh, when they moved there, and when they moved there, California was a great state, and uh, um, we moved up to the Sacramento area. Um, bounced around quite a few different little houses there. It was my uh, my my parents' situation was um, quite volatile, um, so we did move around quite a bit. Um, they had a lot of their own issues, so it was uh, in the house, out of the house. Um, I end up actually living back with my grandparents in Winnemucca, Nevada for hmm, about four years or so. And then, uh, from there I moved back, I was able to move back with my parents back into the Sacramento area. That was about 12, 13 years old. Um, we actually moved into Placerville, El Dorado County right around that time and God's never left country. El Dorado County. Yep, exactly. God's country. Um, spent the next 30 plus years in El Dorado County uh, growing up, going to high school there. Um, what days I did actually attend school, probably doing more wheeling and drinking than I did going to school. <laughs> <laughs> so, as did a lot of us back then. Um, but yeah, I grew up and uh, did the rest of my growing up in El Dorado County. From there on, I uh, ended up getting, uh, got married. Uh, my first wife at 21 22 i think it was right in there had our first son before we got married so uh he was actually the tech he was the ring bearer for our wedding nice yeah yeah it was quite interesting so i uh, was married to her for almost 10 years um things didn't work out as they do with a lot of them um we actually had a second kid during that time so i've got two boys uh my son Devin and my son chad um, who are 30 and 26 now, I believe. Um, from there, uh, during that time, I worked quite a few different jobs, but mostly in the off-road industry. Um, I was uh, worked for Central Four Wheel Drive for uh, quite a while. Um, worked for SNH Four Wheel Drive down in Sacramento. Um, uh, there was the one in Auburn, which I can't think of the name right now. Um, but I worked for an off-road shop there for quite a while. Um, Probably the longest stint I had with an off-road shop was with four-wheel parts wholesalers in Sacramento. Was there for about two and a half years. I went in there as salesman. Within six months, I was the assistant manager, and two months later, was the general manager of the store. Wow. Um, stayed there for about two and a half years and was actually very successful there. Um, made that store. Uh, it was actually the top, gross profit-wise, was the top producing store out of all their stores by uh, about 4% over any of their other stores. Um, but I had the, you know, I had the Rubicon and all the Jeepers to back me there. So we made sure we carried lots of inventory for a Jeep product and, uh, it worked out really, really well. Okay. Let's, uh, um, let's, let's spool back a little bit and uh-huh. dive into some of these, these things. Now you said you were living in Winnemucca for four years with your grandparents. Correct. And that was probably... Well, by the time you said seven or eight to to twelve or so, what was yeah. yeah? What was what was that Winnemucca like? I, I I know now when you go through there, it's you know it's uh, it's just a, a wonderful place. Um, yeah, just, what was it like growing up there? Winnemucca was back then about half the size that it is now. Um, 
it was a really nice and it i imagine still is i don't spend a lot of time there but it was a very nice town to grow up um kids were great pretty much you could do you know kids were as a kid you could feel safe there was no well, there was very little crime um it was a very nice place to live not the greatest time living with my grandparents but other than that i did have my uh mom's parents uh that didn't live too far they're only a couple of blocks away from where uh, my dad's grandparents who i live with uh or my dad's parents who i live with they my mom's parents were only a couple blocks away so i spent a lot of time over there they were great to hang out with a lot of fun um gave me lots of candy um they also used to they were into hunting and uh hunting and things like that so we used to go they used to take me out and go hunting uh taught me how to shoot a gun um taught me how to hunt quail how to uh just do the general stuff that you'd love to do when you're you know a preteen, basically um so those were definitely that part of living in winnemuck was definitely one of some of my fondest memories um the town itself i mean it's a very it was a very simple very quiet town um that part of it really probably hasn't changed a whole heck of a lot um it's still a simple town still fairly quiet it's gotten bigger but uh it still has that hometown feel which is nice so is that where you got introduced to off-road? Did your grandfather have a, a Jeep or something like that That when you went out hunting? Yeah, actually, my grandpa Glaspie, um did have a had an old CJ5, but based on my recollection, I want to say it was probably about a uh, late 60s, 68, 69, so it was definitely a short nose. It wasn't, uh, wasn't a long, uh, longer unit. It was one of the longer wheelbase units that old had a V6 in it that I remember, right? But yeah, that was his, uh, that was his hunting rig. So yeah, he used to take me out up in the hills and, um, uh, we never did any, you know, of course, Rubicon style rock crawling or anything like that, but, uh, it, it, uh, he took it a few places that probably from what I can remember, uh, may have made me pucker a little bit. <laughs> right. But, uh, <laughs> That was definitely his hunting rig, and uh, with that, that and his truck. So if we took more than just the two of us, uh, then we would go in one of his old trucks, and there'd be five or six of us. All my aunts and uncles would go. So I did have a quite extended family on my mom's side. Um, three, two uncles and uh, two uncles and one aunt. So I had the three of them uh, plus my grandma and grandpa. So it was usually a fairly good-sized group when we would go out. Uh, up there. So that was, that was definitely some of the highlights. I loved spending a lot of time with them. Is there a river through or in, in, a, in or about Winnemucca? Yes, that'd be the Humboldt river. Okay. Um, Humboldt river is kind of interesting. It, uh, winds back and forth like a snake and doesn't, and through the main part of Winnemucca, I don't think it goes any more than say 50 to 75, maybe a hundred yards before it makes a U-turn. <laughs> back right. on itself it just loop you've you've probably seen the thing you obviously are familiar with it it's just certain loops back and forth and back and forth and it's it's a crazy little river <laughs> right it's actually um there's a lot of history on the um, humboldt um from you know when the area was first being settled by the by the americans and um you know the the white settlers you might say right mm-hmm I'm kind of, kind of a history buff on that kind of stuff. So, yeah. I'll have to really look into that. That's not something I've ever really looked up as the history on the Humboldt, but I will, uh, since I spent a lot of time there growing up, I'll have to look at, look that up. Yeah. It was one of those areas where when they were coming across Nevada, um, you know, the, the main trail that people would take 
to the West Coast was, of course, the Oregon Trail. And then the California right. Trail um, came across Nevada, and they uh, it was one of those places where, you know, they, they followed or they tried to follow the water or go from water to water to water source when they made those those long treks, settlement treks. But, uh, and that's how a lot of these towns got, you know, got established is somebody broke down and decided they weren't going any farther. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This looks like a good spot to hang out. I think I'll raise my family. <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, uh, I have a friend up in Rangeley, Colorado, and that's exactly what happened with his ancestors. They were trying to make their way to, uh, to Oregon or someplace. And they, uh, they lost the the wagon broke down for the you know umpteenth time and right right on the White River so he just settled the whole area you know he just said okay I'm staying we're not we're not going any farther of course that was yeah. probably in the summer when it was nice and not the winter when it so damn cold up yeah. there yeah December rolled around and they started thinking to themselves what yeah. in the hell did they do <laughs> man I should have fixed that wagon <laughs> exactly <laughs> so. Then uh, you come back to California. You move into Sacramento area. You said, and then uh, and then up to El Dorado County. Um, right. Was that Cameron Park, Shigal Springs? Uh, well, the first place we actually lived was uh, out in Georgetown area. Oh, okay. El Dorado County. We went out to Georgetown area. Um, I don't know if you're familiar. Well, I know you're familiar with the area. If you're familiar with Slagger Mine Road. Yep. Uh, we're at the very very end of Slagger Mine Road. So this was a piece of property that back when they were talking about building the Auburn Dam, uh, this is when they're really talking pretty heavily about it. If they would have went through with it, we would have had about a half a mile of beachfront property. Um, unfortunately, so my dad always felt, well, we're going to stay here. We're going to stay here. We're in the middle of BFE, take a left, a right, and then go another 50 miles. And he's, nope, we're going to stay here because we're going to have beachfront property. Well, as we know, that never came, tr um, came to fruition. So, um, we end up with a piece of property that really wasn't worth much. So that's, that's they, how we ended up in Placerville. My dad was, I, was chasing the job. He was going to work on that dam project. Um, a lot. and, uh, we bought the house in Placerville. We were looking at Jackson and Grass Valley and other places. And he goes, you know what? This is the, the, the biggest, you know, closest town to the side of the lake we'd want to be on. So let's, let's, you know, let's buy the house here. And then, right. yeah, of course it never went through environmentalists, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately it didn't go through cause that would have been pretty nice. Yeah. Um, but being out there in that, uh, being out there, that was, uh, as you're familiar with the, you know, the, the rattlesnake fun in El Dorado County and a lot of places in El Dorado County, it was pretty drastic out there. Um, we had a, our house and we had a, uh, there's a single wide mobile that a friend of my parents were uh, renting from us living out there, a uh, single mom with a newborn. And multiple times we were getting rattlesnakes. We had a, a older Doberman at the time that Doberman got hit probably six times in a matter of six months by rattlers. He wasn't smart enough to leave him the hell alone. Wow. Uh, finally, we got him to stay, you know, finally we got him to stay away from him, but unfortunately it was uh, a little too little too late and it kind of took its, took its toll. Um, but the scariest thing really was um, for that renter, for that friend of my parents, she came home one time um, and had her baby with her and was just about to put her baby in the crib, started to set her in there 
and there was and heard a uh, and heard some noise pulled the cover back and there was a uh, batch of uh, baby rattlers in the crib well at least the the mother rattlesnake knew where to where to put them huh <laughs> exactly they knew where there was going to be food and everything but uh it's crazy yeah so she uh yeah right at that point she pretty much took her kid brought her kid in the house for us to watch packed her stuff and said yeah i'm done and i want to say it was probably not more than about three months later we moved out of there too and that's when we moved down to placerville okay and where in placerville <sighs> oh god you're really making me dig the memory at banks up here um <laughs> uh I'm, I'll be honest with you. We probably lived in four or five different places in Placerville. Okay. So I couldn't even really recall exactly which, you know, where I know we lived. Oh, well, I would say probably the one I do remember we were up um, off of, um, oh God, what's the name of the road? Uh, where the small baseball, the kids baseball park is. Um, yeah, that's the up, Lions, Lions Lion, Park, yeah. but I don't yeah, remember not the, the name. Park where we- but yeah, so we lived just beyond that, up on that hill, that's, at a house back there. They bought a place up there for a while. Oh, that's a that's a real nice area. We looked at. I remember looking at a house up there one time as well. Um, but I think it was when my parents decided to move to Placerville back in the two thousands. But anyway, yeah, that's a really nice wooded area. It's got a lot of a lot of big trees up on that hill. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a that house is where a whole lot of stories come from. Um, so we moved up there. Uh, I guess I was probably 14, maybe when we moved into there. Um, that's where I got my first wheeler. Uh, that's where we really, really got into four wheeling. My parents had bought uh, an FJ40. Um, outfitted it pretty well. This was back in the days before uh, spring overs didn't even exist. Nobody really knew anything about spring overs or anything like that. So they built it. You know, they had 33s on it, um, stock six cylinders, stock four speed that was in it. Um, and we'd, uh, joined, uh, you probably remember, uh, toys on the rock. Oh yeah. The Warren Warden. Yep. Yep. Danny Warden, all those guys. So we had joined toys on the rocks, um, did for, you know, we didn't really know much of them, but, uh, joined that club, went on a lot of wheeling trips. And, um, eventually I was about, I guess about six months later, we found a friend of ours had a, uh, old FJ 40 sitting in a barn that was starting. It was a 76. It was start, uh, just sitting in a barn. They had no idea what they were going to do with. So they gave it to us at a smoking deal. I think we only paid maybe a thousand bucks for the thing, which is just insanely cheap. Even back then, right. Uh, only had maybe 105, 110,000 miles on it. And that was my, that was my first four wheel drive was a, a 76 FJ 40 mustard yellow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, it was a it was an ugly rig, but uh, yeah, but I made the best of it. Um, got that thing up and running, picked up some thirty ones on it, uh, some decent thirty ones, decent set of wheels, and that was what I drove back and forth to school between that and uh, my uh, nineteen fifty nine Harley Panhead that I had also at the time. So oh, very I was nice. Fifty nine Pan. Yeah. Wow. Fifty nine Panhead. Yeah. My dad was uh, into the you know into Harleys. Had been into Harleys for many 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 years um there's actually a lot of story behind that too um but we uh he gave it to me as a basket case when i was 15 yeah when i was 15 gave it to me as a basket case which for people that know a basket case is basically just a pile of parts and baskets yep uh 
gave it to me as that and said, if you can make it run, it's yours. It took me about six months, but I got it running and used to actually ride that back and forth before I got my full driver's license to drive the uh, FJ40 back and forth. That was my uh, transportation back and forth to Eldorado High School. Um, to this day, I think I'm still the only uh, o- only a, what would have been sophomore or junior to ever ride a Harley to high school. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in Eldorado. <laughs> exactly. Now that being said, I did get did gain the nickname Push Start because I could never get that thing timed exactly right. And three times, four times out of ten, you'd go to kickstart it and it'd try to throw me over the damn handlebars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> so yes, yeah, matter of fact, uh <laughs> you you obviously remember Bill Strauss. Yes. Um Bill Strauss, many times, because we went to high school together, he, I think he was a grade or two ahead of me, um, used to, many times he helped me push start that thing. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't have to walk. <laughs> I didn't have to walk, and it, I had the cool factor of riding a, riding an old Harley to school. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, you could have told your kids that you had to walk to and from school in the snow uphill both ways. Yeah, exactly. I told him, no, I just rode to and from school up in the snow. Both <laughs> in a Har- on a Harley in the snow. Yep. <laughs> exactly. So you went all the way through high school at El Dorado? Um, no. Well, I see. I, back when we were in Georgetown, I had, it was my freshman year in Georgetown that I did. At, okay. at, um, I went to Georgetown Middle School a little bit and then uh, Golden Sierra High School there for my freshman year. And then we moved. That's when we moved to Placerville. So it was uh, sophomore, junior. And I actually ended up dropping out about halfway through my senior year um, due to some uh, issues with my parents and uh, some very poor decisions by my father that at the time. So I ended up having to be the breadwinner in the house. And so I dropped out, like I said, about halfway through the senior year, had to get a full time job and make a lot of the money that we uh, to bring in the house so we could actually serve, actually live and put food on the table because my mom had a job but was didn't pay very well and without my dad around without my dad around who were he she wasn't able to obviously make ends meet so fortunately i had to do a lot of growing up real quick right i get it um what kind of job did you did you get at that point Honestly, at that time, it was fast food. Um, I think my very first job was uh, when the old A&W was in town in Placerville. Okay. Uh, worked there as a got, – got in there, worked there as a cook. Um, I did work, work in the fryer back there. Uh, worked there for a few months. Um, let's see. I think it was between there and McDonald's in its original form before they rebuilt it uh, were the two places I probably worked the most there. Um, then right about, I would say 16 and a half, 17, right in there. Uh, a friend of mine, a uh, good friend of mine at the time, his dad, um, uh, owned a construction company in residential construction doing, uh, finish trim and, uh, light duty framing, things like that. So I went to work for him, cash under the table, um, uh, and worked for him for probably about a year, uh, in doing residential construction, just bouncing around from different jobs. And that's actually, um, I don't know if you noticed the last time we talked in person, but I'm missing the index, uh, the tip of my index finger on my left hand. Um, that was during that time, uh, running a chop saw and, uh, with an old broken guard. I mean, this guy didn't have the best of equipment, so broken saw guard and end up, uh, accidentally cutting the, uh, tip of my finger off. Wow. Yeah. I, I've never yeah. noticed that. How much, how much of that tip is missing? Like the whole nail part or? Uh, right to the first knuckle. Right. To, oh, wow. Okay. 
Yep, all the way to the first knuckle. It uh, was quite interesting. It was didn't even know it happened. Um, I had actually let off the trigger on the saw, went to grab the piece of baseboard trim that I had, and went to grab it with my left hand, and my finger just twitched for whatever reason. It bounced off the blade, and all I did is I didn't feel that part of it. I heard a snap. And I looked down at the I looked down at the uh, table of the saw, thinking, "Oh well, God, how'd the board break? You know, the saw was up, uh, board was perfectly fine, and there was one little one little drop of blood on the uh, table on the saw table." And I went, "Huh, that ain't right." Lifted my left hand and looked and went, "Boss, we have a problem." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it threw the tip threw the tip across the room, and the saw was only going about half speed, so it wasn't a clean cut. The boss went and collected it up. We went to the hospital, and unfortunately, they weren't able to put it back on because it was more of a ripped off than a nice clean cut. Hmm. And but it's amazing that you didn't feel it happen at first. So it was it happened pretty damn quick. It did. Know? It was yeah. just instantaneously. Yeah, and like I said, it didn't even and the uh, body reacted so fast it didn't even bleed. It was like one little drop, and that was it. Wow. I was in uh, I was in high school, and I was trimming photographs for a for like a final presentation and we had this huge um paper cutter trimmer you know with the uh-huh. big handle that comes down and it had no hand guard on it as well you know the little piece of metal they put just before the blade little loop oh yeah and i cut like a corner off of my finger part of the nail um you know the flesh and you know you could just see the edge of the bone i didn't hit the bone Wow. And I put my finger, my thumb over the end of the index finger. It was on my left hand. And I walked up to the uh, instructor, Tilio Bertini, and I go, Hey, Mr. Bertini, I, I, I cut my finger. And he goes, Let me see it. And I said, Well, it's bleeding. And he goes, Let me see it. So I, <laughs> I took my thumb off the finger and pointed it at him and shot blood on him. And he goes, all right, all right, you need to go up to the nurse's office. Why, why'd you stop and talk to me? You know, like. Because <laughs> I needed permission. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, the things that happen. The, see, this oh, yeah. is why it's cool doing these interviews. Because, the, like you mentioning, you know, getting your finger cut off um, or part of it brought back that memory. Yeah. You know, and uh, it's amazing how life is full of coincidences, but so many people have the same kind of coincidences. Exactly. It's, you, you, you don't even think about things until someone brings something up. Like, oh, yeah, that's right. I did that. Yep. <laughs> Especially when you get my age and you start losing your memory. <laughs> what was your name again? <laughs> <laughs> so then um, you, uh, you were working construction, got your finger chopped you were you still driving the fj40 at that point uh at that point it was uh, like i said this was a while later so yeah um i it had it, it the motor had finally went i don't recall the timeline to be perfectly honest with you exactly when it went but um i think it was probably when i was 17 18 about the same time that um my uh, father had uh left the picture for a while um that the the fj was broke down at that time so i think i picked up a uh god what did i have at the time oh my grandmother had an old Datsun b210 wagon that they had got a new car and ended up giving me giving me that as transportation so i'd have something to drive and i mean this was the full-on grandma car it was like a 
Oh, God, early 80s B210 wagons, all stock, white, I mean, tweed interior or something like that. It was just ugly as sin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there were some but good little cars, pace. though. Yeah. <laughs> I had a B210. Yeah, no, it was a very reliable little car, just ugly as sin and just not something I really wanted. Luckily, luckily, I'd already dropped out of high school at that point, so I didn't have to get embarrassed by driving that to high school. You just park <laughs> it down the street. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'd park it down the street and walk. You know, like when your parents took you to school, you'd ask them to drop you off a week, you know, a couple blocks before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then with the B210 and working, what was the the next step? Um, well, to work through. Um, obviously, I didn't have the uh, construction job anymore because he decided uh, that it, I was a liability for him to uh, continue working for him. So um, <laughs> after that had healed up, I actually someone I had met while we were working. Um, and I honestly don't recall his name, um, but end up working for him as an apprentice uh in construction so probably till about 19 i guess 19 or 20 um i worked for him and we did spec work um we would you know we just do piece work mostly siding a little bit of framing plumbing line that kind of thing so for about two and a half years we did that matter of fact all those most of those houses in gold river um right down there uh in sacramento you familiar with all those houses kind of off the would be the north yeah north side of the freeway the gold river area right I, between me and him, we probably sighted 80 to 90% of those houses in about a two and a half year period. Okay. So that's where I learned a lot of my construction experience. Um, pretty much just doing just about everything other than maybe, uh, maybe electrical and sheetrock, which I can't stand doing sheetrock, but that's, that's where I learned a lot of, a lot of residential, uh, construction experience, which has really helped me out with, uh, home improvements and stuff of houses we've owned over the years. So I think um, anybody, the, I think anybody that likes sheetrock work has got something wrong with them. They're demented. Yes. I'm going to tell you that right. They're demented. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, basically from there, that's uh, from that point is where uh, when I kind of got done with that resident, that, that stint with uh, him, God, I want to say his name was Dave. Um, when I got done with that stint with him is where I started getting into the off-road industry and, uh, um, worked for, like I said, a couple of small shops. Um, I'm just trying to remember the exact timeline. I want to say um, I got connected up with SNH Four Wheel Drive first. Was it SNH? Yeah, with Nick at SNH Four Wheel Drive first. Um, then when I was Foothill Four Wheel Drive up in Auburn that I worked for, um, but they weren't on the same. So it was SNH Four Wheel Drive first. Then I went to work for Four Wheel Part, or not Four Wheel Parts, but the Central Four Wheel Drive. You remember Central Four Wheel Drive? It's been years since they closed. Yes. Worked for them. Worked for them for a while, and then uh, it was Nick and I think her name was Nancy. This is funny. It's the same uh, same owners' names up at Foothill recruited me up to there uh, to Foothill Four Wheel Drive. I ended up working with you. Probably know the name Tony Casabasic. Oh yeah, Tony K. Or yeah, as Tony Rogi K. calls him. Case of balls itch. <laughs> yeah, case of balls itch, case of ass itch. That's <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I ended up uh, working with him up at uh, Foothill Four Wheel Drive there in Auburn for a while. Um, that's where I actually learned a lot. Uh, learned how to do uh, axle narrowing, cutting, say, Dana 44s, 60s, 49 inches. So I learned how to design and cut down and uh, 
engineer those uh for the time i was there and do a lot of custom fab building um did a lot of uh did a couple of frame stretches uh custom body lifts frame off jobs stuff like that so i learned a whole lot of my fabrication skills and knowledge there um and that was like around around the mid 90s then i would say yes that was probably around uh yeah i would have to say it would would have been around a 90 95 94 95 96 somewhere in there okay and the only reason i can assign that is because um we I remember one specific person we had a, a guy in there i don't remember his name but bought in brought in a brand new 94 tj um literally he drove it from the dealer to our shop and when it left it had 60s front and rear atlas uh, atlas t case custom body lift and 40s on it Wow. Before the thing ever had 50 miles on it. <laughs> the guys do that a lot now, but back then yes. that was unheard of. It was always a process. Yeah. You got a 25 at that time, probably a $25,000 Jeep. Uh, and then he came in and dropped another 20 grand with us. Now that same thing would have been a 50, $60,000 Jeep and about an 80 grand freaking build, but you know, nowadays. Right. But yeah, it was the same, you know, it was the same thing. Uh, but yeah, you don't see that. You just did not see that back then. That was real rare. So we were real happy to get the job. Yeah. And obviously. back then uh, that was, that was mostly custom work. It isn't like nowadays where you can go onto four wheel parts or any of the big catalog companies and just, mm-hmm. you know, pick out everything in one, you know, and give them a credit card number and you, you know, you, you've got everything you need and, and basically can do it in your own shop or, you know, have somebody do the installation for you, but it's all, you know, everything's ready now. Back then it was all custom. Well, yeah. And the things that were custom back then, I mean, you can buy off the shelf. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't even know if Dynatrack even existed back then. I mean, Curry obviously did at the time. Um, but they were still pretty small. But I don't even think Dynatrack even existed at the time. If they did, they weren't building a lot of the custom you know, stuff they do now. I mean, now you can you can practically order a brand new uh, JT with Dynatrack 60s already under it from the from the dealer. Yeah, you know where you couldn't that just didn't exist back then. I mean, we we're you know we built everything from scratch, and yeah, that's one of those things where you get a lot of people now that go out and they have a ton of money but don't have the knowledge to do any of that, which I guess is great for them, but they just don't know anything about their vehicle when they drop eighty to a hundred thousand dollars into it because they just don't know what they have. You know, we had the we had the the advantage of knowing every inch of that thing because we built every inch of it. You know, right? And and that that same philosophy is true with with the driver's ability to drive their vehicle. They're they're not starting with like in the old days we did a you know a five or a flat fender, you know. Um, mm-hmm. no automatic transmissions, all, everything was manual and, you know, you, you didn't have lockers, you know, if you had right. lockers, it was like insane. Um, you know, and then you had to, you really had to pick your line and nowadays, you know, everybody drives up and all of a sudden just, you know, they go off as soon as they hit the dirt, you know, it's four wheel drive, it's lockers on and, you know, you see these guys bashing and because they can't still can't pick a line. Exactly. We we were able to gain the experience of running, you know, a wheel and a rig 
that really wasn't very capable. <laughs> yeah, a, a sprung over, I mean, prime example, a sprung over or sprung under FJ40 with 31s or 33s on it. Yeah, it'll do okay, but you're hitting everything and you've got to learn where you really, really got to learn your line and where to place your tires. And, you know, when you graduate up to a, you know, a rock buggy or a, you know, a T, you know, TJ or you know, one of the new JKs or JLs that are already running 44, you know, you know, 38, 40 inch tires on them with lot air lockers. They're a point and go machine. As long as the person behind the wheel has at least half a clue, but a lot of them don't, like you said, I mean, they can have the most capable rig on the face of the planet, but if you, if you don't have the talent, well, you don't have the talent and it, it ends up showing really quick. Yeah. There's, there's that, uh, Easter Jeep is, you know, coming up here in a couple of weeks and I'll be heading out to Moab next week. But the, if you, by the time people hear this, it'll be like the week after <laughs> I've already left <laughs> by the right. time they hear this. But anyway, they, uh, we, one of the things I like doing when I'm out at Easter Jeep is finding an obstacle, you know, whether it's the Z turn or the golden crack or someplace like that and watching the guys that have the $125,000 JKs or JLs <laughs> try to drive them. Oh yeah. You know, and it's, it's, it's nothing against those enthusiasts. I love that they're out there. They help the shop stay al alive, you know, with repair right. work and stuff, but you know, their, their Jeeps are taking or their, their rigs, it doesn't matter what they're driving, you know, take abuse that, that doesn't necessarily have to have to happen if they, if they could just read the terrain properly and, and know right. where to put a tire. Yeah. It's uh well that, you know, that and the fact that, you know, it's great entertainment for, for us that have been around for 40 years in this industry and uh, have the experience. So well, you know, I, I'll take people like that and I will absolutely help them because I don't want to see them get hurt or destroy their vehicle or anything like that. But I'm not going to lie. I secretly behind the scenes, I'm kind of laughing a lot. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things I'll be I the used first to... One to be there to help them too. You know, I don't want to say that I'm, <laughs> I'm a, I'm an ass or anything like that, but it's all of us. I think that have that background experience that have been around have to look at that stuff and go, Oh, this, this is going to be a show. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll let them go for a little bit. But once we see things are going to get really bad, then we'll, then we'll jump in and help them. <laughs> right. But they're I, not going to otherwise either. You know, I don't, I don't spot people unless, they are frantically asking for it, or right. if I'm I've been asked to like on a trail ride, um, like when we're in Moab, you know I'll jump in with with some friends and they'll have some new people or you know it'll be a business owner that's taken their their people out and they'll say, hey, you want to? Would you help spot you know the group right behind you? And it's like, sure, all right, okay, you know, but I just. <laughs> I think I'm a better spotter than I'm a driver myself, but that's because I see so much of it happening with the competitions, right. but it's, uh, it's more fun to watch and heckle. <laughs> it, it, it is. I mean, yeah, it's, it's like it, you get that mentality of when we were sitting, you know, we were sitting at uh, spider Lake on hecklers rock, watching people go through little sloughs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the greatest heckler of all time had to be Bob Rogie. <laughs> oh my Lord. That guy for someone who, <laughs> Most, most of the time was so quiet and you'd hardly get a word out of him. You get a couple of beers in that guy and you get him on Heckler's Rock. Oh, it's game on. <laughs> <laughs> he was brutal too. And people would look oh, at him boy. like, you know, first they'd, they'd, they want to, you know, they hear the voice, they'd hear the, you know, the comment. And so somebody would want to go like, oh, that guy needs his ass kicked. And they'd look around and see that it was, you know, 
the bear and they're just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, like, we'll just keep going. <laughs> if we're, we can. We're, yeah. We're just going to pass on that. You know? <laughs> oh, I was the, I, I was the target of his heckling just, just as much as anybody else was. So I'm very familiar with it. Luckily I got a pretty thick skin. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you uh, mentioned actually Easter Jeep Safari, um, coming up. It's the last time I was in Moab was 99. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so it was, yeah, even though I'm living here now, I'm not living that far away from it. I just haven't had the chance to get up there. But the last time I was in Moab was 99. Um, it was for e, uh, EJS back then. And this was back when Lion's Back and Dump Bump were still open. Right. You oh, could still Love Dump Bump. Oh, I watched a uh, watched a guy. This was like we were first starting to get in. There was this college group. Uh, these I don't know if they were they were uh, electro- electrical engineers. They had a um, old Range Rover out there. I mean, we're talking the real old ones where the spare tires sat in the middle of the hood type thing. Right. Uh, and they converted it to electric. They pulled the motor out, kept the tran- uh, ke- uh, basically mated the motor directly to the transfer case um, with a little bit of a torque converter in there. And we're running that thing around there as a test. And they took that thing and decided they wanted to do a dump bump in that thing. And this thing bone stock as far as suspension wise, all bone stock, little 30 inch, 31 inch tires, whatever. They beat the living hell out of that thing on dump bump before they finally got that thing up. 15, 20 tries hammering the throttle. I don't know how they didn't bust axles, transfer <laughs> cases, because as you know, with an electric motor, you got a hundred percent of your torque right off, you know, right off the bat. So right. <laughs> I, we sat there and watched them for like 45 minutes, just beat that thing, hammering the throttle. Um, I don't know what that thing had for, you know, it had some sort of factory posies or whatever, but it had all four tires just smoking on that hill multiple times. <laughs> One of the great sco- stories I have is uh, me and a, a guy from Cedar City that was a really good friend of mine, um, Dave Burling. He owned the auto trim design at the time in uh, in Cedar City. Mm-hmm. We were part of the Color Country Four-Wheel Drive Club, and we were out there at Dump Bump, and it was in the evening, and it was starting to get dark, and my son was with us. And he started digging holes in the ground. Now, you know, he's eighth eighth grade sure. you know something That's like that yeah mm-hmm. so he's digging holes in the ground but he's digging them like two feet apart and pockmarks all over the ground <laughs> and <laughs> we never had so much fun watching people you know everybody's got beers in their hand Every, it's dark nobody's got a flashlight yep. or anything it's just whatever car lights you know happen to be on or around and watching right. people step into them freaking holes <laughs> <laughs> and just disappear from vision, you know, and you'd hear, God damn, you know, <laughs> they'd be swearing and stuff and getting up and there'd be, you know, somebody had stepped into one of those <laughs> pock marks. Oh, yeah, that's ankle breakers big time. Back yeah, then. <laughs> it was pretty hilarious. You'll have to bring that up to him when next time you see little. Yeah, yeah, I will. I think I'm supposed to be going over there next uh Next week or week after or something like that, um, he invited me over for something. I can't remember. I got to go back and look at my calendar. Awesome. But oh yeah, no Easter Jeep Safari was a blast. Um, that was a, uh, a well. That was actually you know, when I had my YJ. Um, so when I was with Four Wheel Parts, um, I had a '93 YJ. Um, originally, it was sprung over uh, 35s. Uh, I bought it stock, but I sprung it over 35s. 
uh, air lockers front and rear. Um, we'd swapped out the, when I did the spring over, we'd also swapped out the rear end for a, a scout 44 in the back, kept the original 30 up front. Well, luckily for me at the time at, uh, when I was with four wheel parts, obviously some perks come with that kind of job. So you probably remember Scott Porter with Warren. Absolutely. Um, that's got, got to be really good friends with Scott Porter. Hell of a guy. I mean, that's one of those guys that give you the shirt off his back if you, if you needed it, you know, just the super, super nice guy. Um, he stopped into the shop quite a bit. And this was when Warren was really starting to really push a lot of their product and actually coming out with a lot of new stuff. And this is when they first came out with all their drivetrain product. So they came out with their axles, uh, the new axle shafts, the 4130 axles, um, the black diamond coilover kit uh, was still kind of in semi prototype at the time. So Scott decided because my red and black Jeep, red, white, and black Jeep, which is Warren's colors was parked in front of four wheel parts all the time he decided that well guess what uh, we're going to make that our we're going to make that our uh, rolling display and he probably threw fifty thousand dollars worth of product at that thing um in in promo stuff uh and the biggest thing was the uh was the black diamond coilover kit so i had the second technically production uh black diamond coilover kit off the off the roll uh you know off their production line one on my jeep it was before they were even really selling into the public yet so we had i had the second one on there we did one did one of the very first installs other than prototype we did one of the very first installs there at the shop um so that spent a lot of time out there but that was that was the great thing about that was um the fact that that thing just did so incredibly well with that kit. And I think that's where a lot of uh, the first ability to buy an off-the-shelf link rod coilover type system, I think, was probably the very first one out there. I think, um, wasn't wasn't it Kurt Hildebrand that originally designed that and then I think Warren purchased it from him? Correct, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, they yeah before he ever put it into production, he had the design and had like a couple of prototypes, and then Warren saw the advantage of it, and you know then partnered with uh, obviously partnered with Fox to build the shocks for it. Uh, but yeah, Warren put it into production, you know, developed all the dies, everything, and put it into production. And they had a few little quirks here and there, um, like they had to build a custom rear section for mine because mine had a 44, not a fact, you know, not the factory Dana 35 in the back. So they had to build a custom rear uh, tower because it was triangulated in the back. Um, but they did all that, and it was, uh, you know, this is kind of going back to the Moab thing. That's where uh, that Jeep and probably got my first magazine experience um, was with, uh, for, um, what was it, uh, Peterson's four-wheel and off-road. Okay. So I ended up getting a couple of cover, co- I got a cover with them and a centerfold during Easter Jeep Safari. I actually got a centerfold shot with them. Um, I was out there with, uh, I think it was, um, was it Rustin or Ryan from Rubicon Express at the time? So we get into the section. I think if you remember out there, it's called Tip Over Challenge. Yep. So we're going up it, and I kind of got caught behind a little way. So they're up there, and I because uh, uh, there was a bunch of other vehicles slow, slowing down. So they're going around, and everybody's like, "Go to the right, go to the right." So there's that bush and that tree right there at Tip Over Challenge. Like, go that way. So I have a centerfold shot coming up that, and I got to the point where literally the jeep was about to go over. My left front tire was a good four and a half, five feet in the air. And it was just about to tip. They stopped me right there and all went, ah, nobody went that way. <laughs> <laughs> They're laughing their ass off. I'm like, I'm going to get you guys. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> like nobody's made it up that without rolling over. Oh, thanks guys. I appreciate that. 
Awesome. <laughs> and that's the Jeep that you competed at Top Truck, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I competed at your event, and I competed at the uh, down at the Hammers in '99. Uh, Didn't you do a that Top was... Truck Challenge as well? No, no, no you did. Didn't? Okay, truck. no, I th- wanted to. But the only person I know that uh, that I was actually ever knew really well that did that was uh, if you remember Grady McLeod. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, that rig that he built. Yeah, that was uh, he built. He he ran Top Truck. I think two or three times. Okay. Yeah, but that was no, that I never black, got the, the black buggy. The, truck. the black buggy that he that he ran in that. Because he yes. was at that first um, Cal Rocks put up or shut up as well. Yes, he was. He was the only one. He's the only vehicle I've ever seen to roll uphill. <laughs> no. <laughs> he wedged that vehicle, the front tire, into into you know that crazy stuff that was down there. That at um, I think it was at put up or shut up. It maybe it was the first one of the first Cal Rock events. Anyway, he wedged a tire in there. And then acceler tried to accelerate, and there there was enough torque where it just it rotated the car on that wheel, that axle, and just yeah. flipped him over. And I was like, <laughs> "What? How did that happen? Didn't break anything. Just flipped it over because the the tire was wedged." And I'm like, "At what point? Fu- what? At what point car- do you just let go of the throttle? You know?" <laughs> okay, we know Grady. Grady yes. never let go of the throttle ever. <laughs> True. His throttle, his foot had two positions: off the throttle and in the floor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> At what point did you first go on the Rubicon? Uh, actually, it was before I ever even had my driver's license. After I'd got my FJ40, so I was fourteen and a half, fifteen at the time. I don't even think I had my learner's permit yet. Um, we uh, went on a Toys on the Rocks run for uh, one of their uh, one of their little uh, Toyota Jamboree trips, and my mom drove drove my Land Cruiser up because I couldn't legally drive on the street, so she drove it up to Trailhead. My da- dad drove theirs, and then once we got to Trailhead, she hopped in with them, and I drove. Uh, that was my first time. Was six. I was wasn't even fifteen yet, and drove it uh, all the way through all the way through into the Springs. I don't think I think we went into the Springs and then came back out the same way. We didn't go up to top to Tahoe. But yeah, we went all the way into the Springs and camped out. So that was that was probably my first four-wheel drive trip um myself driving. So it would have been 85 I guess it was because I would have graduated so it would have been 84 85. Okay. Um, was my first driving trip. I'd been up there obviously a few times before riding with my parents, but that was my first driving trip. Okay. My first trip on the Rubicon was in 80 80- I want to say it was the it was the end of eighty one, beginning of eighty two. Had to be probably eighty two. When did you meet the guys from Pirate? Um, most of them I met just different trips on the trail. Um, I would spend when I was between sixteen and seventeen and a half while my uh, Land Cruiser was you know when it wasn't broke down. Um, pretty much we spent every weekend on that trail. Um, we'd get a few of us together and it was funny cause it'd be, we'd be cruising town 10, 11 o'clock at night on a Friday night and went, yeah, this is boring. We'd find somebody to go find somebody of age to go buy us, buy us a bunch of beer. We'd load up, throw our gear in and we'd head up to, we'd leave Placerville at 11 o'clock at night and head up the trail. And we, most of the time we would usually just get into backside, you know, backside loom, maybe spider, uh, that first night and then just camp and party that night. So I think I, most of them I would meet met mostly at spider. 
um, between uh, Lance, Rogi. I um, I don't think I had met Rogi yet, but I had met Rogi during that time. Uh, Lance Clifford, um, God, um, obviously, uh, Dave, you know, uh, Dave Hollywood. Um, so mess, met most of those guys, I would say during that time period between when I was probably 17, between 17 and 18 years old, wheel on the trail up there. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know if you were one of the group that had, um, when you said it was Placerville and you went to El Dorado, I knew it wasn't, but I thought maybe you were, you had gone to Ponderosa cause I know a lot of those guys all started off at, you know, Ponderosa or that's how they met. Yeah, yeah, I think most of the pirate guys, most most of those guys, at least the original core group, were all Pondo guys. Right. So the last last job you had down there in in off road was that four wheel parts. Uh, no, actually, um, I was recruited when I was at four wheel parts. Um, I had been there for two and a half years, and you know, I'd kind of gotten tired of obviously the corporate BS with four wheel parts. Um, it just got to be a real nightmare down there uh, between different little games they would pull um, with commissions, uh, bonuses, things like that. It's just like, this is just getting old. And I was, um, during that time I was approached by uh, Rustin uh, with Rubicon Express, Rustin Smith. And they saw that I was, you know, running that store very, very well. And they were in search of a general manager. So uh, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse and uh, moved over to, uh, moved over to Rubicon Express and became the general manager there for, it was it was a short term, honestly. It was about uh, six eight months that I was with Rubicon Express, and unfortunately, there was a, a person and Rustin and Ryan, nice guys, but there was a bit of a personality conflict in the way I like to do things and the way they wanted to do things. And unfortunately, I'm a bit thick headed, <laughs> so um, I tried to run things the way I knew worked really well at Four Wheel Parts. Well, I didn't get it into my head that hey, this is a manufacturing company they're an actual suspension company not a sales company so i had to get to into, into a different mindset and it just never it never clicked you know it never clicked right so unfortunately that only lasted about six eight months it was a great experience and you know and i appreciate russ and ryan absolutely for uh giving me the opportunity um as a matter of fact i don't know a hundred percent um how this you know how it worked out but that's when uh rubicon express was developing their long arm tj kit um, so I do know, you know, and this, I know that, uh, Marty, uh, their chief and en- chief engineer. So this was say I obviously had the black diamond coilover kit on, on my YJ. Uh, he spent a lot of time out measuring my Jeep. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a feeling that my Jeep may have been, uh, may have been the catalyst for their TJ long arm kit. <laughs> there you go. I'm not saying that for sure, <laughs> but I'm thinking may have had something to do with it. <laughs> well, you know, the, there's nothing wrong with that as long as it's not a direct, you know, absolute copy, you know, right. and, and everybody throws their own twist into things. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's one of the things that, you know, somebody that owns a shop back then, especially, you know, they would teach guys, the people would come in that wanted to work, they'd teach them, you know, how to weld, how to how to do things, make a cage or whatever. And then the guy would leave and start his own company and undercut right. the prices. And, you know, that, that happened a lot. And some of those guys are still in business and, you know, have, have done really well. So, right. you know, it's, uh, everybody needs that, that catalyst for change, you might say, so, or, or at least the, the place to learn. So, yeah, 
Yeah. So then after Rubicon yeah. Express, what happened? Well, at that point, um, after, you know, after I'd left, uh, we kind of uh, went parted our ways there. I, uh, I decided to make a drastic and huge career change and actually got out of the four wheel drive market completely, not only in working in it, but also just in playing in it too. Um, I had a few things happen where we were, uh, you know, even when I was a four wheel parts, uh, we were down at the, we were, uh, I think it was actually down when I was down there for the uh, rock crawling championship in 99 for the Warren one. Um, you couldn't get away from the customers. Um, I was down there not on a professional standpoint as far as the company was concerned. I was down there personally to have a good time, do some competition. And this is actually a funny story with Rogi. Um, one of our customers at the time had bought, had a Suburban, had bought one of the uh, Superlift 8-inch uh, leaf spring Suburban kits. We had a leaf spring, a rear leaf spring that was sacking out on him. And he only had it about four months. And him and I had gone back and forth a couple times on the phone. Well, I told him, I've got one in stock. You know, I've got one in stock. I brought one in specifically for him. Pull your spring off, bring it in, you know, exchange it. We'll give you the new one. Well, he kept not doing it, not doing it, you know, uh, procrastinating. Well, I just kept it set aside for him. Well, I get down there to the hammers. He's like second day I'm there. Uh, he shows up uh, at, in one evening. We're all drinking three sheets of the wind and decides to start picking a fight with me because I haven't I hadn't given him his spring yet. Okay? <laughs> I'm not on the clock. I'm trying to enjoy myself um rogie's there a few of the other i think a few other pirate guys were there and he starts coming up and you know i'm a decent sized guy i'd like to think and this guy was probably maybe five ten five eleven like a buck sixty you know scrawny little guy <laughs> and he starts picking a fight with me pushing me in the chest pushing me and i'm like dude you don't want to go there and i'm trying to keep professional because i'm like this even though i'm there on a personal level if something happens and I swing on this guy, it's going to reflect on me professionally. Right. It's going to come back to my boss at some point, you know? So I'm trying to lay, play it cool. I'm like, dude, you need to stop. You need to back off. I'm not going to back off. I mean, obviously, a lot of alcohol is talking on his side. <laughs> Finally, he starts to come in, and I'm thinking he's getting ready to swing. And the details are a little fuzzy exactly because it's quite a while ago. But right about that point is when Rogie stepped in. <laughs> he stepped in, grabbed the guy, drug him off, um, he drug him off like a hundred yards. He may have pummeled him. I don't know, but he drug the guy off quite a ways away from me and never saw the guy again the rest of that week. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt if, I doubt if Rogie pummeled him, he probably just drug him away. Like, you know, like yeah. grizzly bears do for later. <laughs> exactly. Just throw him away for food for later. Exactly. <laughs> but yes, I was, a. Uh... Ro Ro Rogi came to my defense. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that, that event down there had, oh, my God, um, the the named vehicles. Um, you know, you had Hollywood with his big white. Oh, Goliath. 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 And then you had yep. um, Brutus with uh, yes. Scott. Was it Scott Lentz? Uh, yeah, I think it was. It was Scott Lentz. That was the uh, was it the orange CJ five. Yeah, like a a burnt orange brownish. I right, think. that was the one um, up at Donner. The same one up at Donner who had he had the the dual dually thirty eight eleven hundred boggers on it. Right. Yes. Front and rear. Oh yes. no, no the 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 one that had Dooley's front and rear that was actually um, that was a samurai. In it, Lentz, I mean, Scott may have done something like that with Brutus, but I remember this case used to run all like the 44 um, swampers and boggers and stuff like that. 
Um, and then yep. there was another guy. I God, I can't even remember his name. But there was the three. It was uh, Goliath, Brutus, and oh darn, my my memory is bad. Anyway, I know. But another guy from that that Auburn area. Yep. Oh, um, yeah. I can't remember the name of the rig. Uh, glasses. It was like a, it was a kind of a semi tube chassis rig. Right. Yep. That was real long. Yeah. Yes. It was like it, it, you know, it was uh, excruciatingly long for what he built it for. True. Yeah. So no, I remember that there was fifty eight rigs down there, if I remember remember right, and I end up taking tenth place uh, out of those fifty eight rigs um, in the competition and made it to what they called the dirty dozen. I still have my, the sandstone plaques they gave to everybody. I still have two of the plaques, um, mine and my, uh, my, uh, um, spotter, Jim Miller, uh, uh, um, had got a plaque. Well, I ended up with his plaque. Uh, so I've got both of them still from that event. That was a great event. We had a, I was actually pretty surprised. Um, I ended up placing, like I said, 10th place, one place behind, um, uh, Curry between uh what was oh god i'm brain farting the uh, dad's name this is before casey even existed uh ray ray yeah i was ray curry was driver i ended up placing one one position behind him and the only reason that was is on one one hill climb my ass end slid over and i tagged a cone otherwise i actually i would have been in ninth place and they would have been in 10 nice nice yeah and that was with the daily driver that was basically i pulled the windshield the doors off pulled a bunch of stuff off to lighten it up and threw some swamp 36 inch swamper SXs on it. And we hauled it down there. So that's, <laughs> it literally was my daily driver that drove back and forth to Plas- from Placerville to four wheel parts. <laughs> that was the first competition that I had seen. We were, I was the club president at the time in Cedar city. And I knew that, um, the guy, Dave Burling and I went to go watch the event because we knew there was a rock crawling competition coming in it was arca was coming into cedar city we didn't realize that that event was somebody else was running it when we left like friday evening we got lost getting to johnson valley we ended up in big bear then turned around and came back (laughs) um because you know there was there was there really wasn't any any internet or anything like that you know we were we're just shooting from the hip oh johnson valley OHV area, you know, and we ended up in, uh, off Bessemer mine road in the rock piles or whatever they call it out there. And we camped that <laughs> night, finally got up and realized we are not in the right area. We found the lake bed where everybody was camped out. And right. then the most horrific windstorm, like Johnson <laughs> Valley is known for happened that Saturday night. Cause I can remember being in the, in a tent with my son and we had to put the ice chest in the tent to keep the tent from smacking our faces as the wind would blow. So we slept. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Johnson Valley. <laughs> yeah. I thought for sure when I opened up the tent that morning, Sunday morning, that we would be like across the lake bed. <laughs> <laughs> it was just going to drag the whole tent with you in it all the way across. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah. Now it's a, that's yeah. The wind down there can get pretty horrendous. Luckily, I think in 99, when I was down there, it didn't, it only hit one night. It was pretty bad. But other than that, you know, because we were same thing, we were tent camping and, uh, luckily there was only one night. It was pretty bad. Other, other than that, uh, we, uh, we got lucky. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. That was that, that event that, cause that's when I saw those big rigs and I was like, man, you know, who are, you know, who are these guys that are building this shit like that? You know I mean? It was just crazy. Right. And, uh, And then that's, uh, 
Then we found out it wasn't the same event or the organizer. We go, wow, there's more of these things going on than we thought. And then after we put the, we helped ARCA get started there in Cedar City. Well, before that one, we went to the Arizona event that was, uh, that Ranch was doing, ARCA. And it was on uh, Lower Woodpecker. Yeah, Lower Woodpecker. And or lo- they used Lower and Upper. And then that's when I met um, Lance and Howdy Shell and Rogie. Yeah. Oh, there's a name I hadn't heard, uh, haven't heard in a while. Vince Howdy Shell. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we, uh, yeah, we were, uh, we had met there, you know, as my wife was out of, uh, was out of Placerville. And so she knew those guys. And then we, uh, we got, got to know them. And the next thing I know, they're, they're all staying at my house there in, uh, in Cedar City when the Cedar City event came on. So, yeah, that's how I got to know all those guys. And then I, then after that, I moved to California and started Cal Rocks and, um, Rogie helped with that, getting it right. started and getting that first event off the ground. He did a lot of your course design, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yep. He did yeah. for the first, uh, two or three years, him and, um, Adam. Oh yeah. Yeah. Adam Dodds. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Rog- Rogie's got an eye for that course design. That's for sure. Yeah, he does. He sure does. Yeah. Some of the stuff I've got, some of the stuff we ran that he, that he designed, I looked at and went, dude, you gotta be nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Are you, are you doing this on purpose just to see if see how many rollovers we can get or what? <laughs> <laughs> you know what though? He was guys would get in there, break their stuff, and then they'd complain about the courses. And Bob would, you know, a typical Bobism would go, "Well, if you didn't drive such shit, it wouldn't break." You know, things like that. You know, I mean, just <laughs> and, that's Bob. And people would get so mad they'd come over and talk to me, going. He just called my stuff junk or a pile of shit, and I'm like, "Well, where is it? It's broken over there." Well, maybe so. You know, I mean, yeah. was it, was apparently just, he didn't lie. Yeah, I wasn't going <laughs> to argue with him. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> all right, I got to get him on. He he is not refused to do it, but he wants to do it like more in person, and we've got to have a beer or two before we get started. Because you know oh, yeah. that's the only way I'll get any words out of him. <laughs> oh yeah, you get get a six pack in him, then he'll be ready to talk. <laughs> oh, the stories that could be told. Anyway, oh, that guy, you better plan on sitting down all day. <laughs> <laughs> so then, you do the you do the Warren. Um, you came out and you competed as well at Put Up or Shut Up. You were one of the first yes. forty two. What was that so, like for you? I mean, I know what it was like for me. It was a, it was, it was chaotic nightmare that I absolutely fully enjoyed. Right. It was. It was a, uh, for lack of a better, uh, for me, for lack of a better phrase, it was a shit show because trying to get my rig together. Because at that time, it was my rig is was pretty, you know, had been beat up on the trails quite a bit. It had some, it needed some stuff. So, I'm scrambling for the couple of weeks before that, just trying to get it to a position where I thought it would actually hold up. Because at that point, I literally had started kind of um, changing my direction, and uh, actually, I was getting ready to probably sell it not too much longer after that. So, uh, someone came to me and wanted the axles and the the worn hub kit and the axles out of the front of the thing. So, 
I don't know why, but I pulled the airlocker and the axles out of the front end and sold it, put it back to, you know, put it back to stock and did a couple other little things here and there. Still had the 44 in the airlocker in the back, but uh, the front end was back to bone stock axles. Um, and then it was shortly after that that, uh, that you had approached me where we'd found out about the comp. I'm like, well, what the hell? Let's, this this will be one last great hurrah for this thing and let's see if I can make it out in, you know, hopefully less than 15 pieces. Um, so we scrambled, got the thing together, um, brought it out there, and my God, that was a that was a hairy course. There was a couple of really good ones, and actually, surprisingly enough, I think I was doing, I think I was in the top five for quite a while till uh, till I ended up uh, blowing a front axle. Um, I remember coming across there was a uh, there was a valley section where you had to go side hill across and then turn and drop down into the ravine. And again, Jim Miller was my, my buddy Jim was, uh, spotting for me. He, we got to a point where he actually had to grab the rope on the high side, go around a tree above me and then come back down and hold the thing. Cause we were on such a side hill that most of the time, as I'm trying to make that turn, I'm just on the downhill two wheels. My driver's side, driver's side tires are both in the air and it's just ready. I mean, he's just, he's digging his feet in shoulder up against the tree, doing everything he can just to keep the thing from going over. until <laughs> I finally got it straightened up, you know, got it pointed downhill. Um, that was a hairy one. I remember that specifically. And then the spot where you came in and it was literally about a four and a half, five foot, almost straight drop off into that little, into a, like a, a cutout washout. And, <laughs> As you dropped off, especially the short wheel, short wheelbase rigs like mine, I dropped off. Front bumper hit the ground. It stood up, pivoted on the front bumper, and laid against the wall. So, the only tire touching anything was the sidewall of the right rear tire. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the bottom of that tire wasn't even near the bank anymore. It was about a foot off the bank that I the hill the uh, hill that I just dropped off of. And it's just pivoting on the front bumper, sitting there going, well, let's see, now what I do, if I try to, if I have to, I can't winch out because my winch is buried in the ground at this point. I'm like, well, all I can do is, all I could do is get on the gas. And I think I put it in reverse, gave it a quick bump to the throttle, which spun the tire, the correct, I think, yeah, reverse spun it, bounced it back against the, uh, against the wall. And then I threw it, in, uh, threw it in drive and dropped out of it. So that was a, that was a bit of a hairy spot there. And then from there, if you remember, you made an immediate left in that canyon and you had to climb out almost the same amount of vertical. Yep. Um, I, I, I'd seen a couple people go through it and I'm like, well, the only way you're getting out of this is gas. You know, so I made sure the airlock was locked in the back. Go, look back. I was about three or four feet from it. I'm like, here it goes. Hammered the throttle came up and out of the thing and literally wheelied out. I don't know if you saw it or if you're watching somebody else, but uh, I was, I wheelied out of the thing. Front tire is good, probably four or five feet in the air. And when they dropped, um, I had so much adrenaline going that I still had my foot on the gas when it hit second, uh, second hit blew both ball joints and snapped the axle on the driver's side. <laughs> <laughs> so here's where Rogie comes back in to rescue again. Yeah, you had him out there, and he was one of the tow rigs for getting, you know, dragging people out. Right. He noses he noses up to me. He runs his winch cable underneath the front axle, back up to my front bumper, sucks that winch up, and and basically drags my Jeep up up on top of his front bumper to where the front end was off, mostly off the ground, and backs up and basically as like a tow truck, but in reverse, dragging my Jeep back to camp in reverse. <laughs> 
That's awesome. The, the left front wheel is just off. It just it, it's it's hanging there flat. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the end. Of, that was the end of that competition for me, unfortunately. But at that point, I was actually I think uh, Jeremy Faber was running that FJ, that uh, tube chassis FJ40 that he has. I think he still has it. I was actually ahead of him at that uh, at, at that point uh, in the standings, and it was pissing him off <laughs> that, my, that my daily driver was beating his tube chassis rig. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh man, that, that was, that was quite the event. It really yeah. was. It, there was, that, there was so much going on everywhere that it was absolutely nuts. Oh yeah. Hey, that you, yeah, literally. I mean, that's, I, I think it was a matter of, you probably didn't have, maybe you didn't have enough volunteers or whatever, because it was just, it was crazy. It's like half the time I'm going, where do I go now? What course do I go to now? You know? But again, like I said, that was 20 years ago and we've all learned a lot since then. <laughs> yeah. We, I mean, yeah, the, the disorganization um absolutely i thought and i thought we were pretty well organized because that's why i got into to doing the rock crawls was that you know having been around the others i thought man i could i can organize this better but that wasn't necessarily the case with the first one right and you think back on it i mean hell i even ended up on in court on friday night to make that event happen Oh, that's right. Yeah, because you were having troubles with what, with the permits or something like that? Yeah, in fact, because we didn't have any permits, we were using, you know, the place is a zoned recreational area. Um, and the sheriffs actually came in and said, oh, no, you're, you need to have a permit, county permit. And they gave me a ticket at 1030 in the morning. By one o'clock, we had a lawyer and a civil engineer on site. And we, uh, we went to court at five, beat them, beat their cease and desist order, the County of Amador, and, uh, right. was able to put the event on. We had to cap it at a thousand people. So we, we really pissed a lot of people off because I'll bet if we would have allowed everybody to come on the property that, that wanted to, we'd have had probably four or 5,000 people out there. Oh, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it at all. And that's why I looked at it and said, okay, I'm going to continue doing this because people want this. Oh, yeah. You know, and then we, uh, that first year was pretty crazy because the next event site we were supposed to use was uh, Dead Man's Point down in the Apple Valley area. And it's a big rock area and it's owned by mm -hmm. this guy that's a real estate agent. So, we, uh, we made a deal with him to be able to use that, and then he wanted to know. He goes, okay, I'm going to need all of your driver contact information, all your marketing partners or sponsor um, contact information. And I'm like, no, you're just the property owner. You're not – I'm not giving you that information. And he Why? goes, well – Yeah, well, he wanted to – he wanted to – if this was successful, he wanted to put his own events on. So – he okay. wasn't a yeah. rock crawler, so he didn't have access to everybody. So he wanted me to provide him with all that information. I told him to take a, you know, flying leap. And yeah. uh, we canceled that. We didn't cancel that event. We just canceled going to that event. And right. so then I drove out to, it was over New Year's. It was just before then is when we had the meeting. Went out New Year's to Johnson Valley and met John James, uh, Desert Toy from the tin benders and we ended up he goes well you know we should uh we should use lion's pride park there the the gun range in lucerne valley so mm -hmm. 
in a short period of time, very short period of time, we got the permits for that going through San Bernardino County, and we put that event on there, and that was our first series event, and that was 2002, and I think it was even like March that we did that event, and it was, again, it was widely successful um, with not only the drivers that showed up, but with uh, with the spectators as well. And so, Absolutely. Well, that's a huge area for a spectator. I mean, look at, you know, look at KOH now. This last, um, I just went this last one, and they estimated somewhere between 70 and 90,000 people there. Right. Well, and insane. now, you know, and you may be, uh, maybe you've heard more because, you know, you're in that end of it a little more. Suppose I've been, you know, there was rumors floating around that they're talking about moving KOH to uh, the Sand Hollow area. And I've heard a couple of rumors about it, and I'm going, where in the hell here would you put that? San Hollow HV Park ain't near, anywhere near big enough for that kind of, you know, that kind of venue or that kind of volume. So I'm trying to figure out where they would even put it out here. I, I would imagine because of the personalities involved with Sand Hollow, meaning my son, yeah. and the personality involved with KOH, meaning DC, Dave Cole. Yes, yes. That I don't think that that would ever happen. I I just don't, because I know Rich has a lot of power out there because of Trail Hero and what he's done out there and how right. successful that's been. And that most of the uh, the events out there, if they're four-wheel drive related, um, you know, he's got like the permit. I mean, they only allow so many permitted events out there and he owns a bunch of the those dates i don't know how right. that would work out but yeah you know you never know money money can uh money can make things happen so who knows <laughs> well we know how well uh him and him and cole get along so <laughs> yeah <laughs> famously yeah there's no, no, no love lost there <laughs> yeah <laughs> none whatsoever <laughs> right yeah i'd say probably one of the only big probably the only big event that happens out here that isn't under uh isn't under uh his purview purview would be probably be um UF utv takeover correct yeah uh, yep yeah other than that he has a hand in just about everything else that happens in that area true and that's because the the park and blm and the state park all trust what he's done in the past and g gave him that opportunity you know to uh yeah. to be like the the person that that they trust to go between. Right. Right. No, he does an excellent job. And I mean, it was, like I said, I'd never met him before moving here. Um, obviously you and I knew each other for a long time, but I'd never met your son until I moved here and a hell of a guy. I mean, he does just an amazing job with trail hero. And I'm very, very impressed with the organization and how well, you know, and how well he has it uh, working and flowing. It's pretty pretty damn smooth you know for the size of event in such a short period of time um he definitely and all the other stuff he has going on it's definitely very very smooth well you know acorns don't fall far from the tree <laughs> <laughs> don't don't hurt yourself pat yourself on the back <laughs> yeah i just dislocated my elbow <laughs> anyway so then uh, let's uh let's let's go ahead and jump into I know that you got, you said you got away from the off-road industry. Um, right. Touch on that real quick, and then we'll we'll jump into what's happening now. Right. Well, this was when um, 
uh, see, when I was at Four Wheel, uh, at Four Wheel Parts, one of the customers that I'd met um, had a uh, had a black YJ, um, pretty well built, and had a uh, uh, had done a 302 conversion, injected 302 conversion, all this stuff into it. And uh, he worked in the uh, low voltage electronics industry, so voice, data, CCTV, that kind of thing, um, fire alarm, security, and he worked for a company out of Sacramento called Nutter Electric. Well, he had talked to me a couple times, and I kind of got to understand what his, what the business was. Well, after I left World Parts, went to Rubicon Express, and then that didn't work out all that well. I was still in contact with him, still you know did a little business with him because he'd bought some Rubicon Express parts. Well, I contact him and say, you know what? I'm ready for a change. I'm just ready for a complete career change. I've done this off-road thing for several years now. Um, I need something different, you know? So I contacted him and yeah, it took, you know, it took a huge, huge pay cut, unfortunately, but Hey, it is what it is. You got to do that when you change careers. Um, he brought me in as an apprentice, uh, uh, doing low voltage electronics, doing, uh, um, building out, uh, data rooms and, um, doing basically, uh, computer infrastructure, that kind of thing, and brought me in. And uh, uh, again, as I usually do, I don't know how it actually works out, but um, maybe it's my alpha personality or whatever, but as it usually works out within about six months, I was running crews for him. Um, so we had a had a great company going um, with uh, Nutter where that division, the low voltage division, um, we did huge, a lot of huge, huge jobs. Um, you're trying to think what was probably one of the biggest ones we did was uh, – uh, E-Trade, um, when E-Trade had that building in Rancho Cordova right there on Data Drive, when they built that building, we did that whole job. And that was uh, just in the voice and data part of it was a good year and a half long job, just pulling and terminating cables, um, building out the uh, data rooms, things like that. So he introduced me to that, really got me good, uh, good, good and trained in a lot of those aspects. I worked for another for probably about two years i guess it was two two and a half years um left there and i want to think from there i went to a place called tri-signal integration um at, right out of eldorado hills um they were they did the voice data stuff but also that's where i learned fire alarm security cctv uh fiber optics that kind of thing so working for them we did uh again ran crews for them uh, learned a lot about that industry so i kind of kept growing in that industry and literally was out of the four wheel drive stuff for God, probably close to 10 years. Um, I didn't get back in honestly, heavily get back in until, uh, was it three years ago when I bought my, uh, bought my Can-Am, bought my side by side. Um, it was just one of those things where, yeah, I just go out and play with people and have fun and stuff, but I never didn't even own anything. Um, until, until I bought the side by side. So we were, the the uh, that industry has done really well for me. I grew from you know basically being minimum wage based to where I am now, working for a company the company that I'm with now, which is uh, Direct Digital Controls. It's HVAC control equipment. Um, I do all the systems programming, um, engineering, electrical engineering. Um, used to do some install out in the field, but now working or living here in Utah, I do all my work remotely, which is great. But that's how that kind of graduated. Uh, through that particular industry, and I've been now with uh, with Direct Digital for God, seventeen years going on. Wow. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, uh, is that kind of did it, it? Is that how the the business that you have now, besides working for them, you, your side your side gig, I guess you'd call it, um, 
you know, you're you're doing the company Mega Whips. Correct. And you bought a UTV, you saw the need for for a better quality product. Is that what it what it was that drove you to, to doing that? That's exactly it. I saw the I saw the need right after I bought the car. Um, looking at accessories, and this is probably where a lot how a lot of these uh, UTV companies started. Um, realize the pricing is ridiculous, and you're paying for honestly. When it comes to something, anything short of uh, maybe you know uh, suspension or drivetrain stuff, you're paying through the nose for honestly very subpar, you know sub subpar sub quality um, parts. And I started realizing what was out there, and the thing I kind of gravitated towards was. What can I build fairly inexpensive, uh, fairly inexpensively, quickly, but still build a much higher, better product um, than what's out there? And that's where we kind of got into the LED whips. Um, it was a natural progression for me with my background in uh, my background in low voltage electronics. Um, I had already dabbled in some of it, um, building Christmas, build my own custom Christmas decorations for my house back in California before we had ever bought the side by side. Um, I built driveway hoops and uh, little dancing hoops, those kind of things with LED strip and uh, what they call an Arduino controller, which is a uh, you may be familiar with. Them. It's a Pro, uh, custom program controller that you can write code for and then design all your own lighting patterns, things like that. Started getting into it, learning what, learning what the, the, all the little idiosyncrasies about LEDs, how they work, uh, voltages, things like that. And went, well, hell, most of these guys are building LED whips. They're, they're taking a CB antenna, wrapping a fiberglass pole, wrapping some strip around it, shrink tubing it and calling it, Hey, now I can sell this thing for, you know, now I can sell this thing that I only have, 30 bucks into for two or $300 like, well, I can build something a lot better that doesn't break every other time you take the thing out. So I started diving into it, uh, pulling in some product, doing some prototype, um, end up designing a completely different product than what the industry was used to, where we used a much heavier duty inner core. Um, we originally started with a fiberglass core and then graduated out of that, realizing that that fiberglass core just didn't work out really well. Um, went to a uh, heavy wall polycarbonate tube inner core, um, all CNC machine billet pieces. Um, I probably have in our first year of prototype components, I got a stack of broken and damaged whips. You know, there's probably 50 to hundred of them. But again, that was, you know, that's the process you go through when you're trying to come up with the best product you can. Um, finally, uh, we, you know, after lots and lots of design changes, um, we came up with uh, the design that we have now and it's virtually indestructible um, with the polycarbonate outer casing uh, polycarbonate inner core, which adds, adds a lot more flex. We do a spring base on them, uh, all new, a completely redesigned disconnect system, uh, retained cable system. The whole product, as you've seen as, as the ones you're running, is drastically, drastically different than virtually anybody else on the market. And well, it's it's paying off. It's paying off really well for us. Um, in the last, just even in the last. Uh, God, two weeks, uh, we've picked up five new accounts just in the last two weeks um, for the simple fact that they see ours and they compare. I'm not going to put any names out there, but they compare to what they're already carrying, which is a couple of, you know, major names. And we've taken away, we've taken accounts away from one particular company. I've taken probably 10 accounts away from them between California and Southern Utah and Arizona. Nice. So, 
there's a uh, there's something to be said when you've got you know a small little company mom and pop company like mine can can do that and we stand behind our product and uh, we built something that uh, is I'm not going to say is indestructible but you know I've got multiple customers that have barrel rolled their UTVs and didn't break our whips um, I literally I think I've only had one customer that even taco to whip in a barrel roll and the whip still fully still functioned. Um, he ended up, it was a six footer, rolled a side, rolled his uh, razor over in a, or no, it was a Can-Am, rolled it over in a witch's eye at Glamis, had two of our six footers on there. The inside one buckled in the, buckled in the middle. The outside one hit the sand and literally held the car up. It was sitting there <laughs> supporting the car without buckling. The inner one still worked when he got back onto its wheels. I mean, it made almost a 90 degree bend right in the middle. It still worked. It still lit up and did the full chasing colors right up to that, right up to the bend point. And then after the bend point, it just lit up solid white because, I mean, that's, you know, it's a, it's a flexible PCD, PCB. So it just did damage one of what they call the IC chips, which control the color changing inside those. Right. He straightened that. He straightened it back up, threw some duct tape around it and ran the rest of the weekend. Nice. You know, then, then came to me and said, hey, you know, this happened. It was totally awesome. I'm like, you know what? You send me the picture of that, I'm more than happy to replace that for you. That's great for us, you know. It's great advertising for us. So sweet. It uh we developed a product I think is just incredibly uh much higher end and much stronger than basically anything else out there on the market. Cool. And so, and there's a and, lot more market to to take as well. Oh, it's yeah, it's huge. I mean, like I said, when we first started the company, I did I we delved into a few other things, like I built some radius rods, I built plates some suspension components, a few other little minor things here and there to help kind of sustain. Because I knew the mega whips, the whips portion of it was going to be where the company was going to go. But of course, you know, just like anything else, you need something to help to help generate capital to build the company. And those all things helped. Well, kind of as the, the stories like how it progressed was the original company was not mega whips. Um, that the whip line was my mega whips line. That's what we named it. But the original company was uh, Trail Tech side by side. Okay. So when we had that. It was, I, I was a retail company. I sell, sold online. I'd go out and pursue a little bit of wholesale, but mostly online and retail customers locally. We didn't have a shop. I was a storefront or anything like that. No brick and mortar. Um, but that's where the company started was trail tech side by side. Well, kind of a funny story. Um, there's another company out there called trail tech. Okay. And my trail tech name came from way back when we kind of glossed over, we didn't get to it, but way back when I was in the, uh, still had the Jeep and was building stuff for the Jeep, I had actually started a company back then called Trail Tech. And it was, uh, we had a small little shop right in Placerville um, where we, you know, I would do installs and we'd sell accessories and a few other little minor builds and things like that. And I had that for about a year, year and a half. Um, unfortunately, it was my first dive into business and really didn't know what I was doing. So it didn't, you know, things didn't go well with that, but we all learned from our first businesses. Um, but I took that name and I still had that name. And that's when I started the, you know, started my side-by-side uh, accessory company. So we just added SXS to the end of the end of the name. Well, come to find out, and I knew this other company existed. They'd started after I originally had the name, but there's a company out there that builds <clears throat> uh, more overlander stuff for the dirt bikes for like your, your um, BMW, um, um, uh, moto, motorsports, things like that. So steering stabilizers, a few little different things for these bikes. Well, they're called Trail Tech. Well, Polaris Industries had bought that company. Oh. And they had the company for a while. Well, apparently they were getting tons of phone calls about my Trail Tech, looking for components for us. 
Um, but somehow, because of my website wasn't out there far enough, wasn't registered with enough search engines, they ended up with them instead of me. So they're getting, they're fielding from what they said, 20, 30 calls a day um, looking for me. Well, I get a email from Polaris Industries uh, about a year ago, I guess it was now, maybe a little longer. Uh, no, less than a year ago because we haven't been here for a year. So about eight months ago, nine months ago, I get a, a cease and desist letter from Polaris Industries. And I'm thinking, I've got this little tiny company. Why is Polaris Industries in, in, interested in me and what could I be doing to affect them? Um I ended up calling their lawyer and spent probably about an hour and 45 minutes on the phone with their lawyer. And he basically explained to me, he's like, look, there's nothing you're selling that's in competition with us. The only problem we have is the name. We've got the name um, copyrighted. So I obviously, even though I had the name first, I could have gone through a lot of stuff to fight him. But honestly, the direction I went I was going with Mega Whips anyway was a direction we were planning on going to begin with. All they did was expedite it for me. So I said, no problem. Um, this is something we had in the plans to begin with. So shortly after that phone call, I started the uh, LLC proceedings and uh, went end up getting uh, Mega Whips LLC completely set up and then switched the company completely over to Mega Whips LLC got dropped all my suspension, everything. So it focused strictly on the whip product and, uh, rock lighting that kind of thing and also switched the direction of the company to strictly a wholesale company only and stopped selling retail so i wasn't going to be doing events or anything like that strictly wholesale um my reasoning for that was uh the i would be the only led whip company on the planet that i'm aware of that does not sell retail so that makes me the only company selling to dealerships and selling to my accounts that they never have to compete with. And that's the way the four-wheel drive industry has gone, is just the opposite of that. Correct. Everybody that was a manufacturer or a wholesaler is now selling retail. And so if, you're, if you've been using their products and you're installing and you have a brick-and-mortar store, all of a sudden, you know, your customer can buy it at the same price that you can. And, you know, you, they've taken away that opportunity um, for the business owner. Exactly. And it's, it's in my opinion, it was very, it, it was a very bad decision by these big companies for the small, for, for the small builders, for their accounts that were the small builders and small shops. Um, you know, I, I experienced that competition firsthand when I was working for four wheel parts um, as a general they were manager the originator of, brick, of that. Exactly. They had their mail order division and then they had their retail stores. Granted, my retail store did good, but I had to compete with our own damn company. And that's what I had a big problem with. And I, I remember the nightmares of what it would do to our profit margins and our, you know, our bottom line at that store where I had to take in, you know, someone came in to buy a set of tires or a rancher suspension lift kit or something like that. And I had to sell those things to them at five, 10% profit margin at the best. You know, I mean, that didn't even, that didn't even cover, uh, cover my, uh, overhead. Because so, the customer could buy it, have it shipped to their house, load it in their Jeep, come to you, have you install it for less than what you would sell it to them over the counter. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It just didn't make it, any sense. No. And that's why I found it very strange. The only reason I can think of that, you know, all the big companies have gone that route and started selling retail um, is because of 
the ease of internet and, and the e-commerce, how, how e-commerce has so hugely exploded in the last 10 years, um, they saw an opportunity to make a lot, make up, make higher profit margins, which is great. And I understand that that's capitalism. Let them have at it. Um, I went the other direction because I looked at it and went, you know what? I want to support my dealers. I want to be there, be the company that goes, Hey, you guys got a problem? Call me. I will take care of it. Uh, like warranty issues. I let, I'm probably one of the only ones that tell my dealers, you know what the written warranty is. If somebody comes in with a problem and you feel it's a legit problem, don't send them to me. Take care of them. Give them, give them a replacement. Call me after the fact. Make sure your customer's happy and out the door. Call me and let me know, and I will replace your product. I'm going to trust your judgment. I, I kind of I pick and choose my dealers, um, especially after talking to them, to know who I can feel good about that's going to go, yeah, I can I can judge this as a warranty or not a warranty pretty well. And I let them have carte blanche on it. You know, most of the other whip companies out there, you got they they have to get referred directly to the company, regardless of where they bought it from. They have to get direct referred directly to them. And then they go back and forth with them with emails, phone calls. I've heard horror stories of one in particular that just for a one four foot whip took them six months to get it replaced between finally getting it approved and then having to wait for the product. Right. I'm, I will not do that to my customers. I simply will not. I want to make sure that they can be out that very next weekend riding and doing what they want to do. Cause I mean, they, these people drop 30, 40, $50,000 into these side-by-sides and they don't do that to let them sit in the garage because they're waiting on a warranty part. Right. You know, and they want and, to take that. Right. And, and the thing is, is with the side-by-sides, People don't hang on to their individual side by side for very long. Most, you know, right. they 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 buy it. They they're they're carrying. You know, the bank is carrying the note on it, or or Polaris or Can Am with their in house financing. They right. uh, they either sell that rig to somebody else, and then get a new one and build another one, or you know, it burns to the ground. Um, yeah, you know, which is kind of a common thanks theme, it seems. And then it, and then, so there, you've got a steady stream of customers, even if it's an, an old customer, you know, that had bought your, your product previously from one of your suppliers is still going to go and buy it the next time when they're building their new one. Right. So the, the repeat, you, you, you keep people happy. I mean, it's this, this is, you know, across all businesses. Repeat customers are your best friend. Absolutely. And if you can, you know, develop a rapport where you, they know that you're a good company and you support people, um, they're going to keep coming back to you. You know, right. they're flat out going to keep coming back to you. And that's that's the rapport I build. And I try to double that with the fact that we build, in my opinion, you know, the best product on the market by far. So you have a product that they literally can feel comfortable going out and beating, you know, running their, you know, running their car 80 mile an hour across the whoops and watching them whips bounce all over the place and not going to hurt them. You know, that's what makes me feel comfortable and makes them feel comfortable is I can go beat my car and not worry about it. I don't have to slow down and go, okay, that thing's moving around. I'm going to snap that. It's going to break off. Or I got to, uh, you know, when I go through the tunnel at Sand Hall, I got to, you know, I got to fold that thing down and, or I'm going to break the thing off. They don't have to worry about that. They literally don't have to worry about that. I never even take, I never take mine down. I drag them through the tunnel. I've smacked mine on my garage door several times, you know, um, pulling it, in, you know, pulling it into the toy hauler. That's probably the, probably the biggest thing that snaps a lot of whips is people forget to take them off. They pull them in the toy hauler and they snap them off when they pull them into the toy hauler and forget like, Oh, great. Well, there went three or $400. Now I got to wait for a warranty. 
Yeah. Right. It, I don't run mine very often because I'm only I'm only in the dunes. You know, I mean, we run the beaches down here, but they're not dunes, so you don't right. have to have a whip um, on the vehicle. The you know when we go to Glamis once a year is when you know I run I run them. Um, I've run them on some other trails. In fact, out there um, outside of Vegas, there's uh, oh. Christ, I can't even remember what the name the area is called, four wheel drive area. But it's uh, Red Rock. Yeah, it might be the Red Rocks, and and there's these sand trails through the riverbeds and stuff like that. And right. it's almost like a dune because you can't see the road or what's coming at you unless somebody's got a whip on. Right. And it's all real narrow, sink you know what two track, but you know very narrow. And so I put right. them on then and ran them. Um, just so that people could see me over the top of that. But, uh, you know, they're, uh, they, they ride in the back of my truck along with everything else. And mm-hmm. they're just, they're just the right length to fit in the back of that Raptor, but they take a beating back there because, well, you know, toolboxes and everything else are flying sure. around because unfortunately I don't drive the Raptor very slow. I drive it more like a side by side. You don't say. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know they've never they've never failed. I mean they're they are sturdy, very very sturdy product. Well, that's and that's the thing we we've we built them to be to take abuse. We built them to you know people think well I got to you know I take them off uh, like up in the you know Northern California people that run the woods a lot. Well, I got to take them off to run through the woods because I don't want to break mine. <laughs> Bounce them off trees. Have at it. I, I encourage people to go out and beat them. I want to see how I want to see how much abuse people can put these things through, you know, before they do fail. I, I haven't haven't seen one yet. I've actually had one customer, and as you see, you know, we've got the springs on the bottom. Well, there's a reason for those springs because it's it's not just a pole that's wrapped and shrink tube. This is an engineered whip. The whole thing works together. That's why we built the springs into them. The tube itself, uh, the tube itself, and the polycarbonate. The whip itself doesn't have a whole lot of flex because of that polycarbonate outer casing. So we transfer all that load and all that abuse down to the spring. So we've got. A, I've got one customer that decided, well, I don't want to run the springs because those springs will unthread. And they, you can take them off and bolt the whip right directly to a mount. It's still a half inch stud, just like just like the bottom of the spring has. Well, he decided he didn't want to run the spring. It was very made it very clear to him that uh, you know if you modify the modify the uh, whip in that way, it technically voids our warranty. Okay, but that being said, he ran he managed to get a year and a half out of running a set of six footers without springs before one of them finally started to separate where the polycarbonate tube goes into the uh, aluminum housing in the bottom. Never broke the whip. But it was starting to, it finally broke that epoxy loose from all the whipping and bouncing around without a spring. It finally started to break that loose. Honestly, I'm, I'm amazed it lasted a year and a half, especially with the six footer. Um, because that, because he was not running that spring. He wow. brought it, he bought it from our, our dealer, um, UTV Addiction in Reno. He bought it from them, took it back into him, um, sent me a couple pictures. And I'm like, were you running these without the springs? And he was honest, said, yeah, I was running without the springs. All right. You've had it for a year and a half. Technically, you're past the warranty on breakage, but you know what? We're going to take care of you on one condition. Put the springs back on. <laughs> right. Put the springs back on, and you'll get five years out of these things. Yeah, you know, then with the sh- shrink wrap over, you put the shrink wrap over the spring, and the thing's not all over the place. 
Exactly. And that's why we include that even with our little two footers, not even needed on a two footer because the things just don't move with that spring. But we include it with every one of them. Um, but when you get into four five and six footers, yeah, you get a lot of movement, especially if you've got a you know three by five flag on the thing, which we encourage put the big flags on. We don't have any problem with that. But you get that big flag on there and you're cruising at 60 mile an hour across the desert. Yeah, that thing is going to be moving around. There's a lot of load from that flag. Ain't going to hurt the whip as long as you're putting that spring on there. It ain't going to hurt the whip. You throw that shrink tube on there that we include with the kit. You also, and that shrink tube is mainly not for the high speed running, but it's for the whoops and the bouncing that keep those things from going all over the place. Um, that that's where the biggest complaint with a lot of people uh, with springs on whips. Well, they bounce all over. Well, we've solved that problem. Not only do we use the barrel shaped spring, not a straight spring. We use that barrel shaped spring, which drastically reduces that. Then you shrink tube it. Problem solved. You don't get that after bounce. Yeah, you're going to get a couple of bounces back and forth, but it's going to stop. And as you've seen with your six footers, you can bounce those things like crazy, and they're going to come back to a stop and not beat the heck out of your rig. Exactly, because where I have mine mounted, I was worried that they were going to smack the cab. They don't. You know, not at all. And that's Glamis doing, you know, 80 miles an hour across, uh, you know, through there. So, right. And I do not suggest that anybody drive their vehicle at 80 miles an hour in Glamis. Okay. Disclaimer. (laughs) Yeah, disclaimer. And I didn't really do that. I was just using that for advertising purposes. Yes, exactly. Closed course professional. (laughs) Yes. So what's next? You just going to concentrate on that one product or do you got some other things in mind? Well, we do have, we are working on more new products. So currently, like I said, we've got uh, two foot through six foot whips. We've got uh, our eight pod rock light kit, which those two things obviously are our biggest product. Um, we've come out with a couple of little small components. We still get, even though the whips will handle all you know full-time riding, we still get com- people that want to run just their standard fiberglass poles. So we've come up with an adapter that drops right into our disconnect housing. You pop the whip out. New adapter drops in, and it's got a, uh, a half-inch, 20-pitch tw- uh, thread hole, which 90% of your fiberglass poles, that's what they have at the bottom of them. So we've got adapters for those now. Um, we're also doing one in a 3 uh in a 3 size, too, for some of the smaller flag poles that people are liking to run. So I'm going to have those here probably in about a month. Um, that's the small little things we're doing. We have a RV pole that I'm just about complete on and ready to go into production with, um, 22 foot extendable pole with a, uh, three foot fully, con- one of our three foot whips, fully controllable, um, through RF control, everything all embedded right inside the pole. So there's virtually no wiring that you see at all. So, you um, know, where your campsite is at night. Exactly. So, huh. and that's our first, our, our, what we call our Rev 1, our uh, Rev 1 version of it. Our Rev 2 version is we're working, and this is going to be a little ways out, but we're getting the details worked up. But we're actually going to have a four footer that goes on there um, that's going to be Bluetooth control. And what it is is the first three foot. Uh, will first three foot will be controllable and then the top one foot will be controllable separately from the first three foot so you literally can take the top foot of it and change the color change the pattern independently of the lower three feet so you can literally make a very unique color combination pattern combination so when you're sitting at say sand you know you're you're parked at at halloween at sand mountain and you're at the top of comp hill looking down you can go yeah there's four thousand you know camp poles out there but that one's definitely mine. Nice. So we're working on that. That's coming out. Um, I'm hoping in about two months, maybe less, we'll have the Can-Am and Razor Signature lights that fully integrate with our controllers. 
So they'll do the full chasing colors, turn signals, um, as well as the standard driving light uh, uh, option, which I don't think anybody else right now offers in the replacement lights on the front. So those those are in, uh, in final prototype stages, just getting a few, few little idiosyncrasies worked out on those. Um, our two, three, and four-foot versions of our whips have updated. We now have increased the LED count by about 25% on those first three links. Um, so you've got a good 25% brighter whip, which we're already pretty bright to begin with. Now you've got about 25% more LEDs, which translates to about a 25% brighter whip than most other ones out on the market right now, including our old ones, uh, our previous ones. We didn't do it with the fives and sixes just because, well, the whip is so long, it didn't really need it. Plus, you end up with, you could end up with, the, you know, problems with voltage drop with that long of a whip and that many LEDs. Right. Um, most of your vehicles just don't produce the kind of amperage to push through there to actually keep those lit up well when you go to that high of an LED count. So they're going to stay that way. Um, those I have available now. We just finished uh, getting those and got our first production run of those in. Um, we're always looking, uh, one of my customers actually just came up with a, a idea that I may, I'm going to start experimenting with, with a, um, an LED whip. And I think a couple of companies are doing something like this, but, uh, um, like a chase light, essentially, um, we're, we're in some, we're, we're looking at some design, uh, a design coupler that kind of will make this thing look like, a, the, the double-ended lightsaber, um, with a pair of two foot whips, one going out either way, individually controllable, um, with our Bluetooth controller, they would have turn signal option, everything like that. So essentially a double-ended whip with a center mount. And that still has full disconnect capability, too. Wow. So, That's kind of cool. Yep. Yeah, I think that'll be something good so that you can act that you can put it on the back of your car. You can put it up um, right at the cage and act like a chase light because it'll have all, all the same chasing colors like you would uh, with your whips or anything like that. Um, so that's, a, that's something we're working on right now. Um, i trying to think. What else we got going? I'm, I've, my mind's always going, trying to come up with new product. I'm always listening to my customers uh, with them asking me, okay, do you do something like this or is something like this possible? And I'll tell them, I'm like, if I think it's possible and I think there's a market for it, absolutely. I will definitely dive into it. So we're never, I'm never going to slow down as far as wanting to come up with new product. I'll keep improving our existing stuff and I'm going to keep trying to come up with new stuff as long as it's feasible. And I think it's going to, I think there's a demand for it. I'll do it. Cool. That's awesome. Well, Mike, I want to say thank you for coming on board and, uh, and, you know, talking about your life and your past history and what you got going now with, uh, mega whips. Um, I really like the idea of the chase lights. That's something we'll have to talk about later. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, I hope to see you again here real soon. I'll be in that area, Cedar city. We're going to be putting a rock crawl on here shortly. So right, uh, like we talk, love yeah. to be a, I'd love to be part of that. Perfect. Perfect. So yeah, let's, uh, let's figure you coming on up there and, uh, bring into display. I know that you, you know, you can push people to your, to your, um, distributors, but, uh, might be worthwhile putting up a display. Yeah. I actually have a uh, dealership in uh, Cedar city now. Oh, great. Uh, Jorgens. Okay. Or not Jorgens. Uh, in Cedar city, it's DNP. Okay. Yep. DNP Performance, and I've got Jorgensen's up in Richfield. Excellent. They're they're both taking their first deliveries of product next week, actually. Yeah, DP. That's uh, that's Dean Bullock. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Dean and I guess is Lacey his wife, or no, she's the one. P I was Pauline. To. Um, that was his wife. That's his okay. wife, and but uh, that's I think the daughter. Gotcha. Gotcha. 
Yeah, yeah, cool. No, it's, uh, that I talk to all the time. So yeah, I'm delivering both of those locations. They're uh, first order next week. So excellent, excellent. Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on board and uh, spending this morning with us uh, talking. Hey, I really appreciate it, Rich. It's been a great time and uh, been a great time catching up on some old stories. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have to do it some more when we're in Cedar. Thank you. Oh yeah, yeah. We'll talk some more over some beers. Okay. <laughs> talk to you later. Take care. Bye. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Big Rich. Please let your friends know about this podcast. Let us know what you think of Conversations with Big Rich. Please forward ideas to me, contacts of those that I should attempt to interview, leave a rating on any of the services you found us on. We look forward to your comments and ideas. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and grab all the gusto you can.